Maybe there's something on your mind right now that's been hard to shake all week. Let's just ask the Holy Spirit of God to get that out of the way so that your mind, your spirit is ready to receive what the Holy Spirit has for you today. Father, in the name of Christ, we cast out anything that uh, is not of you today and we cast out all the worries and the garbage that so easily fills our minds. And we know from scripture that when we cast something out, it's a good idea to make sure that we fill it with something more powerful. And Lord, that's you this morning. So we just ask, Lord, that if somebody has come and they've been heavy or if somebody's come and on the way to the church, they've had an argument. I don't know what it is. But Lord, if it's disbelief or if it's... Um, anger or bitterness towards you or another we want that to leave today and we want to invite the holy spirit of god to come and speak through your word father uh, i know one of the telltale signs of a disciple of christ is somebody that pays attention to what you are saying through your word and then acts on it so father we want to be your disciples we don't want to just be Christians, we want to be Christian disciples. And Father, part of that is listening and obeying. And another part of that is paying attention to somebody else that we can also disciple and bring with us. So this morning, we're excited because we continue on with the book of Luke. And I'm thankful to have my friend Brent here to open the word for us this morning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be upon him. He's been doing lots of studying and he, he loves this book. And may you continue, Lord Jesus, to speak through him this morning to our hearts asking that our hearts are ready, cultivated, ready to hear and to be seated and watered by your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. It's nice to be back with you again. If you have the Pew Bible, we're just going to be looking at Luke chapter 5. And I think we'll have it on the screen as well. Sometimes people seem to imagine Jesus to be like Mr. Rogers. You know, he's a figure teaching people to be kind, to love your neighbor and help each other, right? Mr. Rogers ended each of his children's shows with the words, you've made this day a special day by just your being you. There's no person in the whole world like you, and I like you just the way you are. And some imagine that's essentially the essence of Jesus' message. Right? In popular mythology and imagination, that's, Jesus is a Mr. Rogers-like figure. And I'm not trying to knock Mr. Rogers at all or his TV persona. There's actually a recent documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor about him, and it's actually quite a fascinating um, treatment of him, and it shows how complex and radical he actually was. He was actually uh, you know, an ordained Presbyterian minister, but a very unassuming personality in many ways. And some things he did was actually quite innovative in terms of how he approached children. But that essence of that message, just be kind and love your neighbor and help each other, is often how people try to see Jesus. And the issue is that you don't crucify a Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers doesn't get himself crucified. Ironically, some people begin to hate him because they think he's just too nice and too kind and kind of a Ned Flanders kind of figure. And, but... He, he, you don't crucify Mr. Rogers. But the real interesting historical question is, what did Jesus do and say that made him so crucifiable? 
Right? There's one of Tom Wright's interesting phrase, crucifiable. What made him crucifiable? What brought people to this point where they wanted to end his life? And if you read the Gospels closely, one, one thing you sense is that J Jesus is deliberately pushing on some of the pressure points of his society. That he, would, he knew just where those pressure points were and he would courageously act and speak in a way to provoke repentance with the full realization that he was just going to provoke nothing but fury and anger. And yet he would still push on some of those points and his words and actions often cause anger and accusations. In the passage we're going to look at today, he calls a hated tax collector to be his follower. And then he attends a social party at his house, which instigates a controversy. And as you've already seen in your series on Luke's gospel, this is nothing new so far. In chapter 4, after his first sermon in his hometown synagogue, the congregation was filled with so much anger and so much rage that they, quote, drove him out of the town and tried to hurl him off a cliff. And what infuriated them so much? What enraged them so much? He told stories about Israel's most famous wonder workers, Elijah and Elisha, being sent to not, being sent not to an Israelite widow or an Israelite leper, but to a widow of Israel's traditional enemy and to a commander of the enemy Syrian army, Naaman. And he speaks of God's mercy to enemies, to outsiders, to foreigners. And many of these devout Pharisees, and, and Steve last week gave a bit of a, 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 a back, some background for the Pharisees and showed how they were so concerned with their separate status and their separatist nationalism and, and, and kind of guarding you know, the Torah. They resented what he was implying about this message going to outsiders and foreigners. And then in chapter 5, which you've been looking at, Jesus ignored various codes of ritual purity in his encounter with a leper. I mean, the leper's skin disease made him a pariah, an outsider within Israel. He had to be outside the city. He was ceremonially unclean because of that. And he's an outcast. And we saw that powerful story where he comes with his face bowed to the ground and he begs Jesus to make him clean. If you're willing, make me clean. Right? And Jesus does something that must have shocked him. He touches him. He touched him. And, and Steve spoke on, on, on that, that touch. He touched him. And we can never imagine what that touch must have meant to that man to be touched in this kind of human contact. But the compassionate, compassionate touch alone would have moved him, but it was also a healing touch. And now he could be included and welcomed back into Galilean society. But for the Pharisees, the touch was the problem. The touch was the source of controversy. I mean, he could have just healed him with his word. And, okay. But to touch him, right, it, it was ceremonially unclean. And so for the scribes and the Pharisees and the biblical scholars, the touch was the problem. It was offensive and it was a violation of how they understood the, 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 the Mosaic law, the Torah, and it, with them the oral law and the oral traditions. And then the last story you looked at in a crowded house when, when friends come trying to get their, their friend to Jesus, they lower a paraplegic through the roof to bring him near Jesus for healing. And, you, and that's not the, where the controversial part comes. Jesus sparks the controversy by pronouncing the man's sins forgiven. That became the, the problem, the issue. To the Jewish religious leaders, this is blasphemy. They say that. Who is this who is speaking blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then Jesus insists in another provocative way, the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Even that title, Son of Man, is loaded in their day with all these implications from Daniel 7 and who that Son of Man figure is. 
you're the son of man. Who do you think you are? I mean, he is, you know, he could just, he could have just healed that man, but all of a sudden he, he pronounces his sins forgiven. And so the passage we're going to look at today, the conflict continues between Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. And so let's just read this passage together on the screen. There's the NIV. Um, so I'll try to read that instead of the version I have, just so we're on the same page. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days, they will fast. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants a new, for they say, the old is better. Or if you look at the Pew Bible, it'll say, the old is good. The old's just fine. The old's good enough. The old's good. And this is the passage we're going to look at this morning, where here he is triggering another controversy by who he calls to join him. He calls Levi, who is also called Matthew, the first of, who becomes the first evangelist. And Levi sounds like a good Jewish name. Steve told the story of his brother with the name Levi last week. And it's a, you know, what's wrong with Levi? Well, the problem is Levi's a tax collector, which doesn't mean too much to us today. But there, in, the, in that culture, in that time, you know, some of us grew up, uh, translations calling him the publican, right? And I remember always hearing, oh, he's a publican, publican. What's the problem with the publicans? Do they just hang out in a pub too often? Is that why they're so bad? They might, this must be their problem. But the story today is like Jesus is going to the pub, so to speak, to hang out with these people. And this becomes part of the problem. But publican was the old word and a common phrase, but they're a tax collector, this talones. And it's hard for us to really kind of grasp what is the issue, right? I mean, we might not like paying taxes. I mean, probably no one does. But we, we, might, not compl- we might complain sometimes about how our taxes are misused or misappropriated or abused or, or how much or the increases. But generally, we don't despise someone who works for Revenue Canada or an accountant or at the IRS. And of course, those that pay more taxes might complain more loudly. I mean, when the Beatles got richer and richer, all of a sudden, George Harrison wrote a song called Taxman, where he's like, let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man, right? Should 5% appear too small? Be thankful I don't take it all, because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Even the mellow George Harrison of the Beatles, I mean, this kind of raises his ire and anger about the tax man, right? Obviously, that song never became one of their greatest hits, but um, 
it, it does re reflect something. That today, though, our tax system is so much more impersonal and indirect. We might have no actual contact with anyone doing this, or we might just, we're not going to go and resent the employee at H&R Block when we pay our taxes. And sometimes we might even get an income tax return. It's like, oh, we might be pleasantly surprised some years. But in Jesus' day, the tax man, and it was always a man then, was someone the average person dealt with much more regularly because some, some translators will call him a toll collector as well. They collected taxes, tolls, customs, levies. They were involved in a lot of day-to-day -day aspects of life. They were essentially private entrepreneurs, private business people who bid for a contract from the Romans to collect tolls and taxes. And the job went to the highest bidder. And there was a certain amount they were supposed to collect. There were certain regulations, right? Many of the Roman senators and others were concerned with some of the abuses and problems and realized it was, it was susceptible to corruption. And so there were regulations and some rules in place, but it was totally open to fraud and abuse because they collected extra. They added surcharges and service charges and extra percentages and penalties and probably interest charges. But there was always that they were taking more. In fact, in Luke 3, tax collectors, and Luke kind of points out, even tax collectors came to John for the baptism of repentance, and they say to him, what should we do? And John says this, he says, collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. Collect no more than the amount prescribed to you. And what that shows us is John knew of their reputation for dishonesty and exploitation, and now they were to work out the substance of their repentance in their day-to-day -day lives and duties as a toll, toll collector by acting ethically and rightly and following the regulations. He doesn't, John doesn't insist that they leave their jobs. You can't be a tax collector anymore. No more. But he insists that they act rightly and ethically and justly because so many tax collectors abused their power to gain wealth and the rabbis and the Mishnah and other works like that, they equated robber, tax collector. Right? I mean, it's probably with some of us maybe that, you know, ideas with some people how they view lawyers sometimes, but even worse here. Um, but they abused it to gain wealth. It was easy money, and many became filthy rich. I mean, later, we recall in Luke's gospel that famous story about Zacchaeus, how he's introduced. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. <laughs> right? and, and his audience is like, well, good for him. A, an entrepreneur, a businessman, he's being rich as a tax collector, he's done well in his business. No, they knew exactly what that meant. He was rich. He was a crook, right? But many were wealthy, but there was a cost, a social cost of being a tax collector. There was social stigma around it. There was public contempt, because even if they might become rich, Roman elites did not want their sons becoming tax collectors, because there was a social stigma to it. It was not a career or position and a status that they wanted their sons to be associated with. There was contempt and stigma. And in the Roman world, they were people of low status. I mean, Joel Green notes that as a group, they were despised as snoops, corrupt, the social equivalent of pimps and informants. That's kind of the association, tax collector. Right? Roman tax collectors were bad enough, but worse in Jesus' day, in his area, were Jewish tax collectors because they were the ones that were regarded as traitors to their people, not just crooks and corrupt, but traitors to their people. They were collaborators with the Gentiles and with the Romans, right? They were collaborators with the enemies. Remember that old phrase you always hear in those like kind of, you know, working for the man, the man, we always used to hear that. Um, they were working for the Roman 
right? And that was the problem, that, or the puppet government of Rome, because in, in this area, Herod Antipas had, had the control of, of the taxes under Rome. And so Levi and his tax booth symbolized to many Jews in Palestine oppression, foreign domination. I mean, Levi collected coins with Caesar's image on it. And he took extra for himself. And for many of the Pharisees, his contact also with the Gentiles made him ritually unclean, ceremonially unclean, who he would eat and and associate with to do his business. And for them, these people were sinners. I mean, tax collectors and sinners. It could be like tax collectors, even sinners. That's another way of how it were translated. They were sinners because they were living outside of faithfulness to God, outside the boundaries, beyond the margins, away from Torah. This was despicable. And they would expect Jesus to ignore them or condemn them or like John, call them to repentance, not to socialize and eat with them. And so when Jesus calls one of them to become his follower, his apprentice, this shocks them. And so we spent a bit of extra time on that background and that historical context just because without that we miss how controversial this call is, right? And why Luke is foregrounding this because Levi only appears here in the Gospel of Luke, and he doesn't tell about a whole bunch of other calls, Peter and a few others, but why is he highlighting Levi's call? And he, there is a point that he's making that comes out here. It's not just about adding another dis- disciple. This is He's adding this treacherous tax collector. And so the fact that Jesus calls him speaks volumes about his mission and what he's trying to do. And in fact, when he's challenged on this, he states what he's doing. He pr- provides an essentially a very pithy little mission statement. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? People like Levi. And it's brief and it's blunt. And there we see in the text he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. He's on the job. Right? He's at his work. And some might even and that, might, that day might not even look at Levi, but it's interesting how, how Luke records that he saw him. He saw him. He really sees, sees him in a sense. He actually looks at him. I find that detail interesting. He saw him. He looks at him. He singles him out with the call. Right? And he said to him, follow me. And it's a call to join him, to become his apprentice, his disciple. And Levi's response, I mean, the gospel sounds so immediate, seems as stark as his call. He stood up, left everything, and followed him. Right? We see the change. He had been sitting, now he stands. He was a toll collector, now he leaves everything and follows Jesus. And it's just, in a little snapshot, Luke captures this picture. I mean, we see left everything. What does that mean? Because we see in the very next verse, Levi still has a house. He gives us great banquet in the very next section. But what Luke is saying, that leaving everything becomes a way of saying that he has repented. That he is reorienting his life completely now around Jesus and his mission. When he walks out of the job, he's through. He's done. He's left everything. And he, you know, it's interesting what what that means. I mean, Leon Morris says it it means that they would surely never take back a man who had simply abandoned his tax booth. His following of Jesus was a final commitment, right? This creates a reversal in his life. I mean, you think Peter possibly, well, maybe he goes back to fishing. And at one point in the gospel, he's like, "I'm, I'm going back. I'm going back fishing. When he thinks Jesus is dead and it's all over, he's a failed Messiah, it's a failed mission, I'm going back to that. Levi's not going to have that option. Uh, He's cut ties. This is a turnabout. This is a change. It's a 180 turn for him. It's a reversal, and that's one of that theme throughout Luke, these great reversals. And his commitment now becomes this model that Luke highlights. He's uh, this model for a call to discipleship for sinners. 
and this example of repentance. He changes his mind, turns his back on his former way of life, and follows Jesus. Now, when we hear that word, sometimes it just gives us all, you know, all these negative, dour connotations. Repentance, repentance. We hear that and hear it in certain ways. But then look how Levi responds. He's not this reluctant convert. He's not this mournful penitent. He's not just, you know, sackcloth and ashes, and he's not just completely down in the dust. He is ecstatic. He's joyful. He wants to celebrate this turn of direction and his new life. I mean, before, he would just take, take, take. And now the first thing we see that he wants to give. He gave a great banquet for him in his house, for Jesus. He puts on a party for Jesus, a celebration for Jesus. He invites him into his house, a large crowd, Luke tells us, of tax collectors and others. Right? They're probably the only friends he has. Right? They had to befriend each other because most ordinary people would have nothing to do with them. Not just the Pharisees and others, most ordinary people just despise them. Right? And so they're their own little social group, stigmatized unto themselves, wealthy, but by themselves. But Levi wants to invite them. His friends must be wondering, what are you doing? You've got this position, you've got your contracts, your tax booth, you're set. Right? People hate you, and you're, just, you're going to follow Jesus? You're following this figure? What is going on? And most ordinary people have want nothing to do with them. But Jesus, for Levi, clearly isn't an ordinary person. And so he wants to put this feast on for him, for his honor. And Jesus accepts the invitation as the guest of honor. Right? He eats and drinks with them. And this is the first, there's many in the Gospel of Luke, banquet scenes. The, the, these eating scenes, these celebratory scenes. And this is the first one. And not surprisingly, the very fact that Jesus attends this banquet provokes controversy. Because the Pharisees would never enter into a house with these shady characters. They wouldn't be seen with them. They wouldn't sit with them. They wouldn't have a meal with them. They complain to Jesus' disciples. That, you know, it kind of seems clear from the other Gospels as well. They're not in the house, but they, put the, they lodge a complaint. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you guys do that? Right? What, what kind of group is this? And in our modern North American context, that doesn't mean too much to us. To have a meal with some, someone doesn't symbolize too much. Right? So we're put in all different social situations. But in the, in the ancient world, shared meals symbolize shared lives, right? especially in the Mediterranean world, that it's intimacy, unity. Table fellowship meant friendship, mutual acceptance, an embrace, welcome, approval at some level. And there was something shocking for him to sit down and eat with them. No respectable rabbi or religious teacher would mix with such unacceptable people. I mean, the NLT just calls them scum. Why do you eat with such scum? It's a way to kind of modernize tax collectors and sinners. You know, these guys are scumbags. What are you doing with them? And it's very clear that the Pharisees wouldn't is the implication. I mean, maintaining purity was a major concern. They were the separated one, that, that ones. That's what Pharisees mean. They're, they saw themselves as the righteous ones, upholding and following the law of God and the Torah and making sure that they didn't violate it. But bre Jesus breaks these social taboos. Right? He socializes with these tax collectors and sinners. In fact, in Luke 19, it's almost like he just pushes it farther. You know, there's a big crowd, and there's Zacchaeus hiding up, on, on, up in a tree, kind of trying to peek at Jesus and see who he is. And he's the chief tax collector that's very rich and very re renowned. And Jesus just stops in front of everyone and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I must stay at your house today. I'm going to be a guest at your house today. Uh, it's necessary. I must. And Zacchaeus comes down, and, and he's thrilled to welcome him. I mean, he's overjoyed. He can't believe it. But others grumbled. Others grumbled. And we had that same word, complain, grumbled. It's the same word in the, in the Greek Old Testament that's used of the children of Israel. Grumbling, complaining. Right? And it's interesting of who they're being identified with here. 
He's thrilled to welcome, but others grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Tax collector equals sin. And so his disciples have no answer for Jesus' behavior, but Jesus does. And he just says, those who are healthy have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Right? I mean, there are many proverbs that in, in the ancient world of how a physician, a healer, had to get his hands dirty. Had to, had to deal with the, the disease and the sick. He had to get his hands dirty. And here Jesus identifies himself as a doctor, making house calls, so to speak, that this is his statement, this is his mission, this is his vocation as a doctor, and he can't do his work without associating with the sick. Right? Uh, Daryl Bach puts it nicely, he says, recovery, not quarantine, is the message of his ministry. Recovery, not quarantine, is the message of his ministry. And that song we sang, that last one, Rescue for Sinners, almost like a title, which is, it, it, it is a nice tie into this passage, Rescue for Sinners. This is his vocation. This is what he's calling. This is to, co- coming to do. And in the, in the context with Zacchaeus, he says his justification is the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost, the lost, the sinners, the others. Right? So it's not about quarantine, unlike the Pharisees. It's about recovery and redemption. The Levites, the Zacchaeuses of the world were write-offs to them. But Levi has an advantage, and this is where Luke holds him up as a model, because an advantage over the Pharisees is because he knows he's spiritually sick. He knows he is unrighteous. He knows of his need. And when Jesus calls him, he senses almost like a potential acceptance, like a whiff of God's grace, a mercy, an acceptance. And he responds to that. He reacts to that. And true repentance in this picture is like going to the doctor for help, accepting his cure. And Jesus, as this divine physician, is receiving new patients. And some of the Pharisees are just going to say, doctor, he's like, you'll no doubt quote this proverb to me, doctor, heal yourself, right, in, in Luke 4, right? But now he's just like, oh, no, right? He is providing the cure. He is the divine physician. He's receiving these new patients. And, you know, for him, the only prerequisite is not like a Canadian care card or health, health insurance, but acknowledging that you're sick, acknowledging this problem, right, that you're, you have a bad heart that you're spiritually unwell and need him to make you well. I mean, he, the statement's startling. He did not come for the righteous. I've not come to call the righteous. And clearly he's using this term ironically. Right? I mean, this is how the Pharisees are, are self-identifying. Right? They see themselves as perfectly healthy, perfectly fine. Thank you very much. They remain outside his call. They're fine. The sacrificial system of the temple and other elements will deal with it. Right? They don't need something else. Right? The, 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 the Torah provides their needs at that level. And here they, therefore, remain outside his call. And this is an interesting kind of lesson at some level, that it's the very, their very respectability, their religiosity that keeps them from Jesus, their, their sense of, of wholeness, their sense of wellness. I mean, Jesus tells one of the parables that's so famous from the Gospel of Luke, at this parable, it's almost like a case study, a tale of two patients that clinches, a study, that clinches this truth. And you'll all recall it, but it says, Luke sets it up, and he says, Jesus told this parable, this story, to those that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then one of the main characters, of course, a Pharisee, right? Who were seen often as very, these heroic and noble exemplars in their culture and society. He tells of this a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee and the publican in the old translations. The Pharisee and the tax collector who both go up to the temple to pray. And it's like, well, why is the, te- the tax collector going to the temple to pray? And the Pharisee, Jesus says, essentially stands there and prays to himself and basically about himself. 
right? Oh God, this is his prayer. I thank you that I'm not like other people are. Swindlers, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He probably just points and looks over at the tax collector in the temple in this parable. And, you know, he goes, even like this tax collector, unrighteous like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. I fast and I tithe. I mean, he's so smug and self-righteous and proud of himself. And the contrast there is the tax collector. And, and Jesus paints the picture of him not even daring to lift his eyes up to heaven, not even daring to look at, at heaven, but beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And it's the study of these two patients, the contrast. The picture is powerful enough, but then Jesus drives home his point. And sometimes he just lets the parable do its own work. But he drives home his point, and he says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his home justified rather than the other. I mean, he flips and reverses who is righteous, who is sinner, who is the one justified, and who is not, right? The sinner receives God's mercy and forgiveness, the tale of two patients, right? And we can, we can kind of condemn the Pharisees pretty easily. We look at that. We can be smug and self-righteous in terms of like, yeah, those terrible Pharisees. But they were often sincere and zealous, respectable people, known for their godliness, their conservatism, their care. And I remember reading this very provocative book. The title was Extreme Righteousness, Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees. Tom Hovestel, it's an older book, but, you know, seeing ourselves in the Pharisees. And he did a very kind of interesting, sympathetic treatment of them, but he showed how often the danger is that the average evangelical can be too much like the Pharisees and inclined towards Pharisaism, and our respectable middle-class kind of communities can become these type places that can become very Pharisaical. And his title, of course, seeing ourselves in the Pharisees, right? That we have to see this tendency towards self-righteousness and confidence in the flesh, That, that you have to see this human potential, this capability, this is the capacity. And especially for those kind of bred in various churches and Sunday school and so forth, they can become kind of smug and sanctimonious and self-righteous and seeing we're not like those, not other, you know, the us and them dichotomy. And it's, and it's, it's a danger, right? And it's very much an essence of what the Bible calls flesh. And the antidote is not just to see yourself in the Pharisee, but acknowledge that potential and then to see yourself in the tax collector. Right? That becomes the, the trick, that, that prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, from the heart, his whole posture, it's not just words, it's not just like saying a little, ask Jesus into your heart prayer and follow and repeat these words. I mean, this, he's prostrate. He's definitely repentant. He, you know, he can't even look to heaven. There's an element where he knows he needs mercy. I mean, that is the attitude that, you know, the doctor's calling for, right? It's a prayer for mercy, for forgiveness. And only the genuinely repentant want forgiveness. And that's his line. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you see yourself as righteous and good and fine, and you know, his mission's not for you. And only Luke's gospel adds that last phrase to repentance. Matthew and Mark just have, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Luke wants to emphasize that phrase, to repentance. I mean, it becomes a major theme in his gospel. And essentially, Jesus is doing away with all credentials for membership, for joining him in his mission, other than repentance. That he is reforming this community of repentant sinners. That he is welcoming and eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners. There is one uh, contemporary denomination that wanted to take the line out of amazing grace and change it because it was just too derogatory, too lacking in self-esteem. So instead of saying, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, they wanted to modify that. I mean, a wretch. 
but it's the posture of, of grace, the empty hand, the, kind of, the sense of God be merciful to me, a sinner. Rescue for sinners. And this is what the, this is driving at in a very interesting way. And he welcomes them, and like Levi and Zacchaeus, they change. I mean, Levi becomes one of the 12. He writes a gospel. Zacchaeus gives half his possessions to the poor. I mean, Jesus calls and takes us as we are, as sinners, but he doesn't leave us as we are. He's not going to say, as Mr. Rogers might, I like you just the way you are. I like you just the way you are. That's fine. He loves. His love and, and, and his compassion become obvious. He will sit and eat and drink with them, but he will make them better than that, what they are. He sees Levi not for what he is, but for what he can become. Right? And that becomes part of what we start to see in the gospel. And he'll eat with them. There's a sense of embrace. And it's, it's very fascinating that he's call, how people get called to himself. And we left wondering about this, wow, how, you know, the, the, kind of that mystery of Jesus. I mean, one of the parts in Matthew's gospel is he says with a statement, go and learn what this means to the Pharisees. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quote some voice, verse from Hosea. Okay, you guys are the Bible scholars. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And his is this mission of mercy. So the controversy starts because who he, he's, um, was about table fellowship, who he's eating and drinking with. Now they almost all want to shift the, the goalpost and say, what about just eating and drinking? Right? Okay, eating, who you're eating and drinking. Just this problem of eating with drinking. And after all, right, why John and his disciples fast like the Pharisees. They fast. We all fast. We frequently fast and pray. You people are eating and drinking and celebrating and having like it's a, acting like it's a party time. What is going on? What about this contrast? And it's here where he's going to show how radical this kingdom gospel is. That it's a banquet. It's a feast. It's not a funeral. It's not fasting time. Right? That God's kingdom is breaking in. It's this time of forgiveness, the day of the Lord, the day of grace, the jubilee, all these things that you've seen already. And it finally, he just says, the bridegroom's here. You're not going to be like fasting and mourning with the groom here. The new covenant is beginning. You can't make the wedding feast guests fast while the bridegroom is with them. You're not going to, you know, stop the cake and the wine and the celebration. No, right? I mean, in Jesus' day, fasting was a time of waiting. It was mourning over the present time, and usually because God's kingdom had not arrived and the enemies were still occupying Israel, uh, you know, the disasters that had befallen Israel, it was not for wedding feasts, right? You don't abstain from food and drink at a wedding, right? I mean, it's a celebration of life itself. And in the Old Testament especially, there's all this imagery in Isaiah where you have the bridegroom imagery of Yahweh, the God of Israel, being the bridegroom, and Israel being the bride. And, and, and when, when, the, when the Pharisees hear this kind of word, the bridegroom, are you equating yourself with the bridegroom now too? I mean, son of man over here, bridegroom. I mean, who do you think you are for giving sin? The bridegroom? You're the bridegroom? I mean, they would hear some echoes that we wouldn't necessarily hear. We'd think, oh, that's a nice little story, but... They, were, they knew their Old Testament. They knew the Torah. They, they'd hear some of those things, and that's what make them deeply uncomfortable, that he's associating himself with the bridegroom. And they have to be wondering who he thinks he is. But what has happened is that they've missed the time change, so to speak. Right? They've missed that God's eschatological clock, his timetable has moved forward, that spring is here, the bridegroom's here. This is a time for feasting, not fasting. Right? A day will come to fast, Jesus says. He has this real dark note right? Where he says the bridegroom will be taken away. That sounds ominous. It sounds violent. It will be taken away. The bridegroom will be taken away, right? Almost ripped away. And it almost subtly alludes to his death. He knows that these controversies, these very conflicts and controversies over forgiveness and fellowship and fasting will actually ignite and spark a process that's actually going to lead to the bridegroom being taken away. In other words, crucifixion, death, 
I mean, he anticipates that death. And part of his mission as a healer, as a, as a physician, is that he's going to be, as Newman talks about, the wounded healer. Right? The wounded healer. I mean, that's this kind of beautiful image that he's a suffering servant physician who's going to take up and carry and heal by his wounds. Right? That's that, that interesting Isaiah imagery, by his wounds, that he will be the wounded healer. And when he is violently taken away, that's not the end of the stories, story, but then his disciples can mourn and fast, but it's not going to be for long. I mean, Luke's gospel ends with two Easter meals. After the bridegroom was taken away, he returns, right? That his risen life is going to show that the new age has begun, a new era. And as, as usual, he, he tells other parables and images and stories, and he provides so many analogies and pictures that this is something new. It's a new suit. It's new wine, right? You can't cut a new piece of cloth from a suit and sew it onto an old suit, right? It's going to ruin the new suit, and it won't look very good. And wine and wineskins, they would get that image much more than our, 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 our culture does. Peterson updates it in the message and says, you don't put wine in old cracked bottles. You get strong, clean bottles for your fresh vintage wine. That's another way for us to kind of see this with bottles instead of wineskins. But that his new work can't be forced to fit John's movement or the Pharisees. It's not going to fit into these old patterns and paradigms. It's, it won't work. Right? And it's not, I mean, sometimes this passage is about, you know, like, is it about the new versus tradition and old and, you know, that he's mocking those that hold to old. I mean, it has nothing to do with some of these things about, you know, what kind of music or this or that or, you know, what different forms. It has something to do with the new era of the kingdom and of the gospel, right? The Pharisees are going to miss it because they're happy with the old. The old is good. They're going to say it's fine. The old is good, right? Um, and that's where the NASB adds that little word to kind of try to get that emphasis the old is good enough. Right? This is good enough. We're happy with this. They want to stick with what they know. They don't want to try the new. And Jesus does a new thing. And this new thing still forms the basis of Christianity today. He's not just one more prophet or sage. Not the next one in the line after John the Baptist. He's not Mr. Rogers. Right? He's the bridegroom for whom all the ages have waited. And to simply add him on to all the old social religious practice would be disastrous. Like trying to add a new cloth to an old garment or pour new wine into old wineskins. It's just going to burst and destroy, destroy the whole thing. Right? And so what the, the, the focus is, is that to drink the new wine offered at Jesus' banquet, to wear the new garment for his wedding feast, you need this new heart. You have to go through metanoia, this repentance, this change of mind, like Levi, like the tax agents and sinners. And that is ultimately what, what, what's going on here. When he eats with Levi, the message is clear. Jesus has come for people on the margins, people who have made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. He came for us if and only we see and acknowledge that we're sick. Right? And the only people left out are those people who don't think they need him, who don't think they're sick, the self-righteous and the self-important. But as for those who know they're sick, right, there's almost a sense, sense that Jesus is opening it up. The doctor is taking new patients. Right? You know, the banquet, the feast is beginning. Come in, follow me. Right? And it represents a radical alternative to what the Pharisees are offering and, and doing. And on this side, I mean, 2,000 years later, we kind of miss the sense of this freshness, this newness. It might just kind of get old forms and traditions and okay, all across it, but we miss how new this message is and how much, it, how much it changes and how radical this is. So hopefully we can grasp something of this and just seeing see not just another call, another controversy um, that you know, what the, this other call and this other controversy starts to mean of who he is as, as, as the bridegroom 
and as the, as the, as the physician and might em- embrace that in the study of Luke will help us uh, grow in discipleship and see uh, this a bit deeper and more fully and challenge us to think who really is Jesus is he, you know, and try to break out of these ideas of just trying to equate him with a Mr. Rogers type figure and see how radical and fresh uh, what he offers and what he's doing is. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, that is a radical mission statement, uh, and, and, and however we look at it. Let's just close in, in a word of prayer. Our God and Father, we just thank you as we were able to sing of Jesus being the rescue for sinners. We thank you for this passage that reminds us of you know, words that in our culture aren't going to be very popular and palatable. It's not a phrase that people want to associate with themselves, but we see how fundamental and essential this is to coming for healing, coming for forgiveness, coming for mercy, to acknowledge that we're sick and in, and in need of wellness and wholeness and in need of the divine physician and in need of, of this, but also to realize, too, that the excitement of the kingdom help us to capture that again, the, the joy of forgiveness, the joy of being welcomed and received and embraced, uh, this banquet, uh, that we have something to celebrate, that our joy would be contagious uh, as our lives are formed and, and around following Christ. We just thank you for uh, the people here, and we just pray that this go- the Gospel of Luke will continue to challenge, and your word will, will uh, confront them with various elements of the message and ministry of Jesus, and that it might affect them and change our lives, that we might celebrate this new wine and this new garment, uh, and make sure we are, are partakers in, in what here is new. So we just thank you again for this, and we just ask your blessing upon each and every one in, in Christ's name. Amen.